This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut, and this week we're talking about the future of cities. Over the past few decades, cities have been a center of anxiety in the American mind. Whether we're talking about the fading of the industrial centers in the Rust Belt or the booming gentrification of those cities that have managed to successfully transition to an information economy. Then COVID came and kind of set those anxieties into overdrive, but it also upended some of the assumed wisdom when it came to city life in the U.S. With the sudden rise of remote work, soothsayers were warning of a future with hollowed-out cities, as workers fled the cramped confines of expensive condos to more relaxed and affordable suburbs and smaller cities. On the other side of this were hopes of a kind of renewal, in the form of more equitable and livable cities with greater social safety nets. Now that we've been living in that future for a year and a half, those predictions have lost much of their luster, and the future of cities, while maybe more clear, remains very hazy. To bring some more clarity, we invited Richard Florida to the Crosscut Festival to weigh in with his evolving vision of our urban future. Florida is probably best known for his 2002 book, Rise of the Creative Class. He is also a professor at the University of Toronto and co-founder of City Lab. So, yeah, he thinks about cities a lot. One note here, in his conversation with Monica Nicholsberg of GeekWire, you'll hear Florida talk about what happens if COVID becomes endemic. And I think it's important to note that this conversation was happening in May, when hopes for herd immunity were higher. And it's important to note that we do appear to be headed toward a COVID-19 virus that is endemic. So keep that in mind while you're listening. This conversation and all other conversations on the tech and economy track at the 2021 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by Comcast, which would like to share the following message. Comcast connects Washingtonians to moments that matter helping their fellow residents stay connected to their families, workplaces, schools, entertainment, and their world through the internet. Comcast Washington is dedicated to serving their local neighbors and working with nonprofits, businesses, and cities to create equitable access to the internet and other technologies for communities statewide. Visit washington.comcast.com to learn more. This conversation is also sponsored by C-City, which would like to share this message. C-City is where tech and the community collaborate to get results. They are a tech industry nonprofit dedicated to the 300,000 tech workers in our region, with programs designed to leverage the power of the industry for the good of the community. They are proud to support the Crosscut Festival and conversations that shape the future of our region. Learn more at ccity.org. That's S-E-A-C-I-T-I dot org. I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Richard, thanks for being here. 
Oh, it's great to be with you, Monica. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I want to start out with a topic that's inspired a lot of hand-wringing and anxiety over the past year, this idea of the urban exodus. So much ink has been spilled over this fear that the pandemic is going to hollow out our once thriving cities. And I know this is something that you've researched and studied quite a bit. So how, sh how worried should we be about this trend? Um, not. And I'm just amazed at the amount of gloom and doom pessimism that a pandemic like COVID-19, it's, it's amazing. Like if, if you cycled back 13 months ago or so, roughly a year plus the last year, it was like, our cities are dead. They'll never come back. Like it was headline after headline, urban exodus, everyone's leaving. And, you know, now a year later, even the places that the New York City tabloids that were sort of the first with this are saying, you know, great summer in New York, New York City comeback, Broadway's reopening. So, you know, I thought it was dumb at the time. I said it was dumb at the time. You know, I have the great privilege to be able to actually research this. So, you know, what's interesting is I never really looked at pandemics in history. Like it's not something I studied in school or graduate school or I taught my students or that it's actually a big, there's not even a big literature about it in urban affairs. But, you know, if you look back at it, which I did a year ago, you'd see that, you know, this is this this urban exodus is temporary. People tend to leave cities, especially rich people, um, and they get a lot of attention. But there there are two other kind of people who left cities. One is families. Like so, we saw accelerated family formation moves. Like if you have a kid or having another kid, or you know, you're thinking about a kid and you were thinking about moving sometime, you just move. And the other one was young people. Like you know, cities are filled with young people. Half the increase in cities over the past decade were young people like in their 20s and early 30s. Well, a lot of students, a lot of young professionals, a lot of people moved home with mom and dad. So net net, you know, when you look at the data now that has been collected by organizations like Zillow or people who've studied the US Postal Service change of address forms, there's not that much change. Um, you know, there's been a little bit of out-migration from New York and San Francisco, <clears throat> but, but most of even that out-migration isn't people going to Miami and Austin. We talk about that later. It's really people going to the suburbs and particularly the big one is like rural areas, like the Hudson Valley towns or the Hamptons, like they gained people. And the question is how many of those people are there permanently and how much, how many of them actually who are time, you know, always splitting their time, how many of them kind of gravitate back. So net net doesn't look like we had a great urban exodus. I think you've written about another factor that's also at play here that while it's small is a big deal for the tech industry and innovation economy. So when you're talking to tech entrepreneurs and venture capitalists, you know, the, the few who are leaving these liberal coastal cities, what do they say is the main driving force behind their decision? Well, you know, I'm talking to you today from Miami Beach, where we spend the winter and this winter, you know, I didn't have to go to work worked remotely. So we spent a winter here, um, you know, and, 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 and so the two places people point to a lot are Austin and Miami and Miami. And I want to unpack them. First of all, Austin has long been a dominant tech hub. It's at least as liberal <laughs> as San Francisco or New York. Um, when I wrote Rise of the Creative Class 20 years ago, Austin scored second to San Francisco Bay Area on all of my indicators of tech hubbiness. You know, I've been studying and visiting Austin. Uh, a guy who helped build Austin is a guy named George Kosmetsky. happened to be a professor at Carnegie Mellon a long time ago. I taught at Carnegie Mellon in the early, I met George like 30 years ago. Um, so Austin is a, a new tech hub 30 or 40 years in the making. Miami's different. And, and Miami, if you had asked me five or 10 years ago, 
I would have said you're, it's a nice place to go in the winter. It's warmer than Toronto, but it's never going to be a tech hub. And I think slowly but surely it started, and you know, I've tracked some of this, but I think what's going on here is different. And, and I think part of it is taxes and the fact that, you know, Trump got rid of this, this salt deduction, which means the ability to deduct your state and local taxes from your federal return. So I think for rich people, that made a difference at the margin. I think, you know, people realize they could work remotely and some people like warm weather. Some people like resort, resort living more than, and especially people with families who might've gone to like an outlying suburb. Oh, they think Miami or, or Coral Gables, you know, or Palm Beach is a nice place to live. But I think there's something different going on. And I, I think what people are reacting to is the restrictions that went along with the pandemic the kind of ex- what, what they would consider the, the extremer lockdown restrictions that were put in place in San Francisco and New York that were quite very effective. I also see this with, there's a lot of Torontonians moving to Miami, a lot. I would say after New Yorkers, Torontonians are the next major group. When you sit down and ask these people who might be in the financial industries, the real estate industries, the tech industries, why are you moving to Miami? The answer that comes up is I can live my life here. And I find this to be fascinating. So, so for me, to be honest, like I've actually liked living here more than I thought. Our kids are in this little pod school. They've gone to school every day. I didn't, I've not gone to a store. I, I did go to the pharmacy, like, but I'm fully vaccinated a week ago to pick up a prescription. But like, I haven't gone to a store in a year. I've gotten everything delivered. I'm kind of like really careful. My wife's really careful. We've, we've never been in an inside restaurant. We've only met friends outside a few times. But what these folks keep saying to us is like, I like my personal liberty. I like my freedom. I, I can manage my own risk. So I think another part of this story that no one's talking about is that, is that you know, Silicon Valley, when I started to study it 30 or 40 years ago, was like an open frontier where people could do anything they want. And there was Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and the Grateful Dead and Jobs and Wozniak and nobody bothered you. New York was always a place like the craziest artists and creatives and innovators went. They could do their own thing. These were places that really risk-taking people would go. I think that Miami offers them that now. It's a place that, that risk-oblivious people, that people who really want, and, and, and risk-taking people like entrepreneurs and innovators don't like restrictions. So I think the open climate here, is, I, no, not to say it, the climate that allows you to manage your life or pursue your life or live your life freely is a big part of what's attracting people to Miami. So that's really fascinating. Is that a trend that we can expect to continue in the long term, or is it really tied to the pandemic and the temporary restrictions that more liberal coastal cities have put into place? You know, this is a big question. If you believe, and I, I, I've read a lot of this, but I haven't made it. If you believe that the vaccines will get rid of this and say end of summer, it's gone, then I think all goes back close to normal. Although I think Miami does emerge as America's third great global city. I think it's New York, LA, and then Miami. Miami's just grown. It's a big city. It's 6 million plus people, the metro. You know, it's always been a headquarters of Latin America. So I, yeah, I think Miami's status improves at the margin. But if you think this virus is endemic, and if you think it's seasonal and affected by cold weather, then it's a different calculation. And, and what got me so interested in this is, you know, I love real estate. I'm like a real estate junkie. I read all these sites. And, and you, you read these things like somebody bought a house on Zoom for 20 million. And then the next week you write somebody bought a house on Zoom for 30 million. And then you read somebody bought a house on Zoom for 50 million. Why would people on a Zoom call 
That's a lot of money, even for a rich person. So my, my hunch was that many of these people are hedging the downside risk, that they believe that this pandemic won't be over come the end of summer, that there will be flare-ups, that there will be seasonality. So I think, you know, when I think about this sorting that we've seen uh, from, you know, talented people, if you will, high human capital people, highly educated people, techies and what I call the creative class to the coastal cities, you know, plus Austin, plus Denver. So the coastal cities like New York, Boston, Washington, and then, you know, Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, LA, and then a few like Denver and, you know, Austin in between. I think you can complicate that sort by saying now there are risk averse places and risk oriented places. And that we're seeing a new sorting based on that, particularly with highly ambitious, highly entrepreneurial people who tilt libertarian. I'm not saying that's everyone, but the Peter Thiels of the world who tilt libertarian. I think they are, and, and their counterparts in the finance markets and their counterparts in real estate, I think they are looking for places that allow them to undertake more risk. And to them, I think that's what the appeal of Florida, Elon Musk, that's what the appeal of Florida and Texas is. It isn't just low taxes. It isn't just open governance. I think it's this idea that these are places that are less restrictive. So yeah, I think we could begin to think about places in those two categories as lasting categories. And by the way, I think that innovators and entrepreneurs have always gone to risk-oriented places. I think that's what Silicon Valley was back in the 1960s. I think that's what New York has been from the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, probably up until now. I think cities have always been places that risk-oriented people felt comfortable I think that now, though, we're seeing this different sorting. And yeah, I'm not saying it's going to be lasting, but it's something we should keep our eye on. So what does that mean for the Seattles and Portlands of the world that are known for more liberal policies and maybe tend to emulate European cities a little bit more than these more libertarian, um, you know, risk attracting towns? So I think that, look, Seattle, home to Microsoft, home to Amazon, a leading tech, it will be fine. San Francisco will, uh, you know, I look at the deltas in this. When people track, like the San Francisco Bay Area share of U.S. venture capital, and it goes from like 25% to 23%. You know, and the next place is 10. You know, San Francisco Bay Area isn't going anywhere. What you might see at the margin is the rise of a Miami, uh, a little bit, you know, and but it's never going to be San Francisco. So... I think the incumbent cities will do well. I think they might lose high. I think what remote work does is enable really rich people. So, you know, if you own a hedge fund or an investment fund or a real estate fund or a tech company, you can move out of San Francisco or New York. You can move your residence to Florida or Texas, but you can keep your company there and you just pay less taxes, you know? So I think remote enables that to happen, but I don't think it enables you to bust apart the the cluster. I think the cluster that is Seattle, the cluster that is San Francisco, the cluster that is New York, and a lot of, it's really interesting, a lot of these creative class types, uh, the the people, the innovators, the techies, you know, look, the way I would say this, how many of my, when I taught at Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon kids wanted to go to San Francisco, the number one destination they liked back then was Austin, even more than San Francisco. They kind of liked Boston. They liked D.C. They liked crunchier places. You know, they like crunchier. They skew kind of socially more liberal. Maybe they're economically conservative a little bit, but they skew socially more liberal. They're not attracted by red state politics that kind of repulses them. So I think the established tech hubs remain attractive to those folks. But the people who, who run the companies probably skew more libertarian. 
so they go elsewhere. Um, but I don't, I don't see Miami, maybe it's just me, I don't see them being like the number one destination for MIT and Carnegie Mellon or Stanford engineers. Now, maybe, maybe they could pick up like European or Latin. Like when I was visit, I visited MIT as a visiting professor uh, in 2019, in fall of 2019. Uh, like when I talked to the Latin folks at MIT, they're like, yeah, Miami would be great for us, but not that, you know what I'm saying, not so much the, the U.S. kids. So, yeah, I think there's a difference, but I'm not, I think there might be some, and there might be some rise of the rest generally, but I don't think it's going to alter the playing field all that much. Sure. You hit on something we talk about at GeekWire a lot, which is that the Elon Musks and Peter Thiels of the world, the managers of big technology companies, do not necessarily reflect the ethos of the average tech workers at those companies. Oh, I, agree. I think that's exactly right. But I think, you know, they can play a big role in helping a second tier community become better. So look, the way I always say this, and you and I have talked about this, if you want to think about the rise of the rest, you can't think about like everywhere America, you know, and as much as I may have complained about Amazon's, you know, incentive extraction campaign, their analysis of cities was probably the best I've ever seen. You look at that short list of the 20 finalists. What was it? Miami, Toronto, Denver, Austin, Dallas, I forget, Atlanta, Boston, Washington, D.C., New York, Philadelphia, that Indianapolis, Columbus, that's a pretty darn good list of the actual places that you think about. And I think one other thing, I think what the pandemic really does for like the regular professional tech worker, the geek wire reader, I think a lot of those folks awful are like rural areas. I think some of them like urbanism especially when they're young in like a city like Seattle or San Francisco, or, or a lot of them love New York, Manhattan and Brooklyn. But as they start to have kids, they don't like the suburbs. Like they don't like the traditional generic suburb. That was the American dream. But they really like a place like Hudson Valley, New York, or they really like a place like Bozeman, Montana. There is something about rural America that speaks to these people. And, and I think that's the other part of this, that I'm seeing a lot of that group of people, once they have a family say, you know, San Francisco's pricey, New York's pricey. I'm going to go to this really cool, small part of rural America, you know, but, but a very hip part of rural America, a Bozeman, a Hudson Valley, kind of creative class rural America, and I'm going to start my life there. I think that's the other big change the pandemic brings. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you brought up kids because while families moving out of cities to the suburbs is not a new phenomenon, there is this new phenomenon in the U.S. that's getting a lot of attention with the newly released census data that shows the birth rate dropping to historic lows, record lows. And that's more acute in cities than anywhere else. So you touched on this briefly, but I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about why kids are disappearing from America's cities and what's lost when they do. You know, we've actually done research on this. So I actually did research on the U.S. and then the Swedes have like the best data in the world. And I have a Swedish colleague, Charlanda Mellander. So we just wrote a paper on the declining fertility rate, birth rate in cities. So it's actually something I'm, I'm kind of dangerous. I, I know a little bit about. Um, you know, first of all, we've seen family size shrink over the course of the last century, right? That's as, as societies become developed, but Gary Becker kind of invented this theory. It's societies become more development. You have fewer kids, and you invest more in them, right? So my parents both had seven kids on a side. I have two, right? And, you know, maybe if I was younger and could do it over, I'd have more kids, actually. I mean, they're great, but I didn't. I had kids older in life and we have two, but, you know, anyway, we don't have seven. 
Uh, and nobody I know has seven. Maybe somebody has three or somebody, one person now has four. But so, yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, people are postponing marriage. Like they just, we just get married later and you end up, you know, we're on record at this. We had 17 IVFs because we postponed our family formation until we got older. So I think that's part of it. The, the age of first birth of the birth child has a big, you know, I mean, the math just gets difficult when you're having kids in your thirties or forties versus kids in your teens or twenties. Um, I think that American cities are really hard places to raise kids. And I don't think this is the case in Canada or Europe. Like, like in the United States, schools are just really hard to navigate in urban areas. Public schools are problematic. Often private schools are not only costly, often private schools are not in the urban core. Oftentimes private schools were built in the suburban hinterlands uh, long ago and they're not in the city. So then people just say when they have a family, you know, it's expensive to live in the city. It's hard to live in the city. And the schools are far away, so I'll move. Um, and yeah, I think with COVID, the birth rate decline is, you know, it's scary. You know, I was scared to death. I'm not an anxious person. I actually called my doctor and said, could you prescribe me anti-anxiety pills? And he said, no, you don't need them. Like, chill out. And I didn't. Like, I was freaking out. And I'm not an anxious person. So I think a lot of people postponed it. They got scared, right? And who would want to give birth? Like if you could manage your way around it, who would want to give birth during COVID when your loved ones couldn't be with you and you're scared? But yeah, I think it's a long run problem. And um, I think it's something we need to be concerned about. I think, like I can say in Toronto, Toronto is a, is a city, even though it's expensive, that's filled with kids. Way more than any U.S. city I know. And, and kids give cities a really great vibe. I think cities with kids are great, but I just think it's a hard thing to do in the States. Yeah. And I mean, there is some debate over how concerned we should be about this. There are plenty of studies that show, for example, that the best thing you can do to reduce your carbon footprint is to not have children. But I don't know if it's discussed as much what the economic and societal issues are that are associated with a low birth rate. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, Should policymakers be trying to encourage young people, especially people in cities, to have kids? So I, I don't know. But I can tell you, my parents scared the daylights out of me about, you know, one of my uncles got his teenage girlfriend pregnant and got married young and didn't finish high school. Like, and I'm the parent of two girls. Now, my girls are four and five, but, you know, I'm not going to scare them like that. Like, I'm going to tell them that actually having kids is the greatest thing you can do. And it's really important. I just think a more general awareness, in, instead of saying kids make you not happy, which is a whole literature on this that say your happiness declines when you have kids. The other thing is probably support. Like, you know, I had kids later in life and we have a nanny because, you know, I made more money. Like, I think it's really hard if you don't have support. And our childcare system is so awful. So, so better support, like social supports for to have kids and yeah, I, I just think there's a way to turn this around. I mean, we, we've depended on immigration, right? In America, we depended on immigrants coming here, having more kids than we do. Like my grandparents, <laughs> having set, you know, seven aside, um, coming from Italy, Southern Italy. But yeah, I think there's stuff we can do. Um, and, and I think we're better off for it. You know, I, I think we've become a society. I hate to say this, Monica, and maybe somebody will chop my head off. I think we've become a society that's kind of biased against kids. We send out a message that, that, that it's hard, 
that it's hard work, that it's no fun, but also that it's expensive, that it, it ties you down, that it's an encumbrance on your personal freedom. And I, you know, I'll tell you the truth. If my wife wasn't persevering and didn't have those 17 IVFs and was as chicken as I am and had given up, I would have missed the greatest joy of my life. That's tell and I'm a guy who said, I don't want kids, you know, I'm fine with my profession, I'm self-actualizing. I would have missed the greatest joy of my life. So maybe that's what you should tell people. Like these things are really miraculous and they're fantastic. And, and to build a society which, which reflects that rather than a society that says, if you have these kids, you're going to give up something and it's going to be hard. I think it's more social and, and the public policy is support, right? An ecosystem of childcare and support, but more it's a societal norm and a, and a, and a, a sense that having kids is a joyful experience. Well, as someone who's expecting their first, I'm happy to hear you say that. Oh, congrats. Holy God. Congratulations. <laughs> and you're younger than me. So you did it right. Um, <laughs> well, look, I don't know uh, if there's a writer. Or David wrong. Letterman always said this. And I don't mean like folks, I don't mean it. David Letterman always had this. If he had one thing to do over, he would have kid, more kids and more kids early. And I would say it. I agree. Well, many right ways to do it, but <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. Um, switching gears a little bit. How do you expect the pandemic to change how we think about urban planning? Like, will we be able to look back on this moment in history as a time when our cities fundamentally changed? Well, first of all, I think we've gone overboard with public health. And that's hard to say now, even when the pandemic is still so serious. But look, I think we put public health in charge of too much. And, um, and we use 19th century public health tools to address the 21st, like we, we never had the ability to work remotely like this before. Uh, we never had the ability to kind of shelter in place and to understand and have delivery and have Zoom. So look, I think the first thing we have to do is put more urban planning and more economic development in the conversation. And you can almost look at societies where public health kind of controlled the conversation and they've had more problems. So I think the follow on the mental health effects, the physical health effects, you know, uh, the 400,000 backlog procedures in, in Ontario, Canada, where I live, those are big, the mental health effects, the effects on kids who weren't, you know, uh, especially high schoolers or, or early college students. Um, I think we need to put more multidisciplinary approach um, with economists and economic development. I've been saying this. We need, we need not only to plan to shut down a society, we need to plan to reopen a society. I think the urban, the, the city form stuff will be, all, it's always the same, Right. It's more light, it's more air, it's more outside. I think those are the things that will last. The restaurants outside, the more bike lane. That was the accelerant, right? That was already happening, but it's now accelerated and enabled mayors and city councils to do that. Um, I think the big change in cities is gonna be the change in the central business district. I think the central business district is kind of the last hangover of the industrial age where we packed and stacked people in these towers. And I think the central business district is going to change and we're going to have more interweaving of living and working. Uh, I don't know if that's going to come as a result of changes in urban planning, but it's going to come as a result of changes in what we live. Like I would say the pandemic has allowed knowledge workers, the 20% to third of us who do knowledge, professional, technical, engineering, scientific, creative work. It's enabled us to dictate the terms of work a little bit more. And I think that search for work-life balance is going to become more important. So will those knowledge worker jobs no, not be returning to cities, at least not to their downtown cores? Well, I think that these are changes at the margin. So 
let's say before the pandemic, 5% of us worked remotely full time, and now maybe 20% of us can. And the people who are likely to work more remotely are like me and you. We're different ages, but you're having a child. I have two kids. The people who have families are more likely to say, you know, I want to work remote. I want to spend more time with the kids. I want more space, right? Mm-hmm. I want more affordable house. I want, that's what, what every survey of remote workers, I want more space. I want more affordable housing. I want to spend more time with my kids. They also is the same thing. Um, for young people though, who are embarking on their career, they're going to do what they've done in the wake of every other pandemic, going back to the middle ages, zoom back to cities as they are already doing, because that's where the jobs are. That's where the better wages are. And that's where more young people are dating and mating market. So I think what happens is the office and the central business district have to become a better place. They're pretty horrible. Like now central business districts have been changing. They've been getting better. They've been getting more mixed use. They've been getting better restaurants, not just grab and go. But even if you look at tech companies, they're not really in the big office tower districts. They're in the neighborhoods adjacent San Francisco's mission and Soma, uh, you know, Lake union in, in Seattle and those areas, not necessarily the downtown core per se, in New York, they're in Soho and Tribeca and Chelsea and parts of Brooklyn, not in Midtown in the financial district. So I think we see those central business districts start to change. And I think, you know, I've been writing a lot about this. The office is, is more like a place to meet and have social context, not just plug in your laptop and sit there and work. So and I think the whole business district becomes much more of a live work neighborhood, 24 by seven, vibrant. And so your day at the office isn't a day at the office. It's like a local business trip where you go, you grab coffee, you meet with some people, you then go to the office and have a meeting uh, and you then you know go back and have lunch with people and the same thing. And I also think the office its experience gets spread out. So partly the office is in your house, partly the office is in this downtown place where lots of people come, but partly the office is a co-working space close to where you live if you live in a suburb. And, you know, the, the, the research that comes out of this shows like 25% of people who work at home work in a co-working space. Remote workers work in a co-working space. They don't work, they work in an office. 22% of them work in a coffee shop or similar. And a whole bunch of them work with somebody else in somebody else's house. So, so it's not like they're just chained to the house. So I think that the work experience becomes more flexible and you work not just in one place, but in multiple places, including your home. So given that dynamic, it really casts a new shadow on all of this housing that has been built very close to downtowns, especially in booming cities like Seattle, where I live. We've seen this just explosion of market rate housing, expensive condos being built, clustered right around downtown with the idea that these well-paid, well-heeled workers are going to want to live really close to the place that they have to be working every single day. Are those developments in jeopardy now that we're seeing this really rapid transformation of the way that knowledge workers work? Well, I I think urban living is a price point issue. You know, when people ask me about why is everyone leaving New York, I I always give the same answer. I probably prefer to live in New York City than any place in the world. All I need is a four or five bedroom apartment or townhouse that I could afford. That would be the same price as a four or five bedroom house in an affordable city. You give me that, I'm fine. And I'll bet there are a lot of other people. So it's price, you know, those apartments. And and I think the idea of marketing, whether it's Seattle or San Francisco or New York to the globe, it was just stupid. We're going to build these giant, beautiful skyscraper towers with fantastic views. And the apartments are going to go for $20 million and and some global super rich person is going to buy it. 
that market is pretty finite. And it's not a market that really appreciates cities. It might like to have this trophy that you look at, but it's not a city dwelling. And that's why you got developments that were kind of almost like gated tower complexes. So I think cities get younger. That stuff gets reprogrammed. Um, it can become, we saw this in Miami last cycle, 2008, with all the luxury condos that went out in the Brickell area. They couldn't sell them, so they rented them out. And that's how Brickell became an interesting neighborhood. Young people started to rent those condos and animate the neighborhood. I think, though, we're also got to have to look at something, what I would say is like the mixed-use building. And not just the mixed-use neighborhood. I think that, that people are looking to be able to work a little bit more from home, and that's harder. Uh, I'm talking to you from a condo in Miami Beach. I'm actually, we rented an apartment. I'm talking to you from a rental apartment in our condo building, which I use for work and Zooms. You know, and we had the means to wait out a pandemic and rent a little apartment that I could put up a Zoom studio in and do calls from. Because we only have a two-bedroom apartment and we have two kids. Um, I think that having these kinds of spaces, workspaces in apartment buildings, uh, co-working spaces, not just in urban centers, but in suburban areas. Um, I was talking to a group in Victoria, Washington, uh, Vancouver, Washington, that bought one of these historic uh, old industrial parks designed by a great mid-century architect that is thinking about remaking that as a place for living, working, co-working. So yeah, I think the rise of the mixed-use building, and I think that's not only the case in the urban area, but in the suburban area where you can live and work. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, right, look, most remote workers, most people do remote work jobs live in cities. That's because most remote work jobs are in cities. So even if 10 to 20% of them leave, that still seems most of those people will still be in cities or close to cities. So yeah, I, I think they're just going to get younger and more affordable. And that's not a terrible thing. What does all of this mean for the workers whose industries depend on knowledge workers being in a physical place consistently? You know, we're talking pretty exclusively about the creative class here, but there's a whole other class of workers whose jobs are really dependent on these predictable patterns of commuters. So we, we actually have very good, a whole range of research on this. Um, knowledge workers have just done just fine during the pandemic. I mean, wages and salaries haven't gone down. They've had much more flexibility. They've been able to work from home. This 20% to 30% of us who end the stock markets up, their real estate, unless they change houses, their real estate prices are up. Um, they've done pretty well. It, it's really the rest of America, so-called essential workers that have gotten decimated. And essential workers tend to be disproportionately female, disproportionately new immigrant, disproportionately black or Latino. So, from the incidence of COVID cases, COVID hospitalizations to deaths, which are any times from two to five times higher, um, the, to the ability to safely shelter yourself and work, not have to work around the public or others. And, and I think now you, to add insult to these already high level of injuries, the people who get hurt in the decline of the central business district or the office district are not the knowledge workers who simply move their location of work from an office to a house. And, and reduce their community expenses, so their lives might get better. It's the essential workers who work in the uh, restaurants, retail shops, all of the service ecosystem that services that, who've been destroyed, who've seen their livelihoods destroyed. So yeah, and the research been done, the, the, the economics research was a group out of the University of California, San Diego and elsewhere, just shows the big impact of the decline of, the, of, of, of remote work and the decline of the office district isn't on, off, on professional workers, it's on essential workers. So it's a big, big deal and it's quite, it's quite terrible.
quite tragic. And are those jobs gone for good? I think the jobs have changed, right? I think that those jobs might be gone for a long time or changed. Um, I don't think those grab and go restaurants are going to make it and those low end, you know, coffee shops. I think it's going to have to be an upgraded experience. So some of those jobs may be gone, you know, and those jobs have shifted to delivery, to warehouse and logistics, all of the things that we've depended on. And so, yeah, some of those jobs may be gone for good or, or they've, they've been turned into other kinds of jobs. Yeah. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So what can policymakers do to help those people who are not looking at a return to work anytime soon? Well, you know, you got to give the Biden administration credit. You know, the stimulus and bailouts and funding have done a lot to help. Americans. I mean, if you had said to me two things, one, and I hate to give Trump any credit, but, you know, with the vaccine and Operation Warp Speed, as much as it was the American private sector and in me, you know, we did okay, even with the worst president in modern memory. And then, you know, fortunately, (laughs) as America seems to always rise to the occasion, we we elected a really good president, you know, some people say a transformational president. I don't know about that, but a really good, competent person who knows how government works. And we enacted, you know, a broad set of stimulus measures uh, for to get money in the pot, you know, more far reaching than most European societies did. We got money in the hands of people and, and allowed them to survive. So I think I think that the national level, we've done a good thing. I think for the local level, what we've not done enough of is this. There has been a lack of awareness of understanding and planning for a post-pandemic reality. Our localities have been very reactive, very restriction-oriented. You know, all those things were important, especially in the early days of the pandemic. But, you know, since March of last year, I've been arguing we need plans for reopening. We need plans for post-pandemic life. We need strategies to get back up and running. We need ways to make sure our airports are safe and universities we're getting there, but we're doing this in this more ad hoc way. So I think the most important thing our com- cities and metro areas can do is really focus on uh, what this post-pandemic reality be like. And then I think what you said, not just getting open and up and running, focusing on equity and inclusivity. And I think the big thing there was, you know, we saw an outpouring of popular support uh, across classes, across races, across generations, that go under the banner of the Black Lives Matter movement, where people said enough is enough. This racial and economic injustice, we've had enough. We want to see it build, you know, we want to build back better cities, to use Biden's phrase. Yeah, I think that's what we got to do, because if not, we're going to reopen, but we're going to become, I mean, what we've seen, right? Massive stock market gains, massive real estate gains, massive gains going to the 0.001%, substantial gains going to the top 20 or 30%. And then everybody else's economic fortune, while the stimulus and bailouts help, 
sinking, relatively speaking. So we're going to have to address that and build a more inclusive society going forward. So maybe you've already answered this, but as we hopefully enter this final chapter of the pandemic, what do you see as the number one challenge that our cities need to overcome? Well, you know, the, the one that really worries me is, 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 is it's really two sides of the same coin. Um, it's, it's the anxiety about how people go back to normal life. So there are a lot of people like me who, who just lost their footing. And I know I'm not the only one. Like, I've still not been on a plane. I, I don't know when I'm going to be ready. Um, I was to one meeting that was sort of quasi indoors. It was with a 93-year-old man who was also vaccinated. And we sat in his hotel room and I was still scared. He wasn't. Um, I'm, I've don't, and I don't think I'm the only one. There are a lot of people who just don't have their mojo back. And, and it's like a post-traumatic stress. Someone said to me, who's a psychologist, it's kind of what prisoner release, when you, when you release somebody from jail, it takes a long time. And there's been studies of this. So that's one. The other one, I think, is this just disorder, what I would call, that, that, that is plaguing our cities. Crime rate, violent crime rate, uh, petty crime. Uh, what, what one downtown expert I know calls the downtown disorder. And I think there what's happened is the pandemic removed the kind of classic Jane Jacobs eyes on the street. Our cities were not just vacant. They, they, you know, people came back, but they weren't as occupied as they were. And into the lurch go the risk oblivious. I mean, who are the ones that are going to go back to the city? It's the people who have no sense of risk and, and they're just risk oblivious. So in a way, our cities are occupied by the risk oblivious. And I hear people, you know, in Miami Beach, you talk about the, we talk, people talk all the time about the chronic spring break and the partying and how much they don't like it. And the people in the apartment chairs. In New York, you hear people talking about, well, I feel danger on the subway, particularly young women. I don't feel as comfortable as I used to be. I, I feel a little bit, it's more dangerous so I think there is the big thing is going to be how do we create a calmer, more normal environment, which enables people to go back to work, to go back to daily life. And hopefully the summer, right, as the weather gets nicer, particularly in the northern cities, as, as, as the vaccines get more widely spread and people feel more comfortable, that happens. But I think this is the number one factor, this kind of disorder. I don't know what else the word for it, disorganization, disorder. And it's happening. It's not just in a few cities, you know, it's San Francisco, L.A., Seattle, Portland, New York, Toronto, Miami. Everyone has a kind of different expression of this. So that's what I think. And it, it is not a law and order thing. You're not going to put the cops on the street and fix it. You know, it really is a question of getting people the Jane Jacobs kind of natural rhythm of cities back. And that might take longer than we think. Well, on the flip side, what uh, what makes you most optimistic about this next chapter? I mean, look, so I don't cry easily. When I went to get my vaccine in the Unidad Community Center in Miami Beach, I walked up to this place and I saw a Haitian, Latino, Latin, you know, African-American, EMTs, emergency personnel, fire, because it was above the firehouses where they stored the vaccine and doctors and nurses. And I started bawling my eyes out. And I said, why am I crying? 
And what came back into my head was my dad, seventh grade educated guy, Italian American, who, who, who literally enlisted in the US Army the day Pearl Harbor was attacked and he told me this story. He said, Rich, never underestimate the ability of America to turn around. He said, I enlisted, they gave me a stick and a doughboy helmet from World War I and said, Lou, go train in the Fort Dix or wherever he had to go. And he said, by the time we disembarked to go to England to then storm the beaches at Normandy, you could see the, trans you know, the Navy transports coming with tanks and guns and, and everything we needed, field hospitals and encampments and everything you could imagine a, an army would need, we had. And I saw them, I'd never seen this. I'm born in 1957, Monica. I've never seen America through my father's eyes. I always saw America that people questioned. To see the way we mobilized, it created this vaccine, but then the distribution, which wasn't like some government run program, it was these volunteers coming from just out of the woodwork. I was bawling my eyes out. Like I, I was never happier. So that's what makes me optimistic that if we could do this, we can do anything. And I, that's not like Pollyanna bullshit. Like if we could do that, we, and I think that's got to give us more. I've heard people your age say this is the first time I've seen anything in America that, that I can really say I'm super proud of. So, yeah, that's what gives me optimism. And I think the fact that we and I think when we look back, like, you know, when you're now new, new, new pending new arrival is older, my kids are older. When we look back, I think we're going to we're going to forget a lot of the pandemic because that's how we are as humans. They call this management of the pandemic. These RNA vaccines, these genetic vaccines that we invented and then and then rolled out so quickly are going to change the way my dad said penicillin and the polio vaccine. We're going to look back at this and go, this was an incredible moment of innovation. And they changed the way we treat malaria and multiple sclerosis and maybe cancer. And so, yeah, I, I'm optimistic. What, what makes me nervous is that we forget that we have a tendency as human beings to forget the pain and suffering. And, and, you know, the fact that, look, we're going to go into the roaring 2020s. There's no doubt in my mind, we're on the cusp of the roaring 2020s. Just wait till the summer. But, you know, the roaring 20s was the flappers and the jazz age and the great Gatsby and a big party. But there was a time of tremendous inequity that it took the New Deal and, and, and more to solve. I hope that this time we don't forget that we don't go into this giant party mode and forget all the things that are important to us and that we really do double down in building, you know, a better, more inclusive, that we do build back better. So that's my hope. Well, I think that is a beautiful note to end on. Richard, thank you so much for joining me. This was a really fascinating conversation and certainly trends that we're going to keep watching closely. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Richard and Monica for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Sarah Bernard. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, 
go to crosscut.com slash donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.